By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They are the place to go online for setting up a golf simulator in your home or business. They sell all the major brands of launch monitors like Foresight, Skytrack, Unicorn, and Flightscope, and they make their own enclosures, screens, and hitting mats, pretty much anything you're going to need for your indoor studio. And they're always ready to help you navigate through all the options. You can call them up and talk to their experts, ask for Gerald or Hunter if you have questions for which system you need for the size of your garage, media room, basement, or your budget level. So thanks again for their support, and you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. So today, we are continuing our Managing Expectations series with Lou Stagner. Lou, what's up, man? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Always fun uh, talking with you. Yeah, I think that the last episode we did with Lou... (laughs) I think we, we thought we were going to get through like all parts of the game. And then I think 30 minutes into it, I was like, oh, we're barely getting through putting. So at that point, we made the decision on the spot to make this a series. So if you haven't listened already, you can go back into our library. The first episode we did with Lou was on putting and greenside wedge play. And Lou, if you want to just kind of refresh people's memories about what you do with stats and kind of your goal with them for golfers... So I am now part of uh, Arcos Golf, um, which is fun. I started there a few months ago, and I'm helping them out with their data journey and helping golfers use Arcos to to get better at golf. And I work with lots of different players at lots of different levels of the game uh, and started this journey probably three years ago now. So it's been a pretty amazing ride, and it's been a lot of fun. Nice. 
So today, I think we're going to start with wedge play, and then we'll we'll see how far we get into the conversation. Maybe we'll get to irons. Maybe we won't. I guess we'll see. Sounds good. You've been pretty. <laughs> you tweet a lot about your your issues with wedge, your your hosel rockets, and I see. Oh man, we're just going to bring on. it up right off the bat. But I want to ask you because we we did our episode on launch monitors not not too long ago. You got the the Bushnell launch monitor recently, right? I do have the Bushnell and I've had it for a couple months now and I absolutely love it. It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah, I saw some of your, you were showing some of your scatter plots of wedge shots. It looked pretty good, but yeah, whatever your, I know it's the equivalent. The Bushnell is kind of confusing to people. I get the question out. They're like, what's the difference between the GC3 from Foresight and the Bushnell? And it's like, there's no difference in the hardware. It's the same exact launch monitor. It's kind of like the subscription options, correct? Yeah, the only difference, everything's exactly the same. It is the same physical unit. You use the same software. So for any of the GC Quad folks out there, you use the Foresight FSX 2020 software, which is what I use with it. The only difference is the price. Yeah, The Bushnell is $3,000. And then they have different subscription plans based on how much data you want to unlock. And if you get everything that they have available, it's $800 per year. And then the uh, GC3 is 7000 up front, and uh, there's no subscription for it. Um, so your break-even point with the Bushnell is about five years, roughly. Yeah. It would be about seven grand end after five years. Uh, and it's great. I figured you had done the math on that. Yeah, not only have I done the math, but I, I've, I've kind of turned... I've kind of turned it into a, a, a mini GC quad. So I, I was able to get a whole bunch of shots from some teachers and that were taken on GC quad. And I built some machine learning models that allow me to plug in some of the missing data points. So compared to the GC quad, hmm. some of the things that I was interested in were face angle, loft. And so I have a model that can now use all the other data points to very accurately tell me what my face stole angle what I was going to do. And- <laughs> so, so foresight sports, hopefully you're not listening to this. <laughs> well, I only use it for myself. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything else with it. It's just for me. So that's cool. Uh, and then I've been working on impact position and I think impact position is going to, going to be decent with the driver. And my hunch is that there's more gear effect in the driver, which is making it maybe easier to, to get a little more precise on impact location. So I absolutely love it, and I could literally spend all day hitting balls on it and toying around. So I'm a huge fan of of it, and it's great. So if you're thinking about getting one, and I, this is not paid, by the way, like nobody pays me. Like they can if they want to. <laughs> yeah, if you're please listening. reach out if you guys want. Yeah, if you're listening, you want to sponsor me, please reach out. But I absolutely love it. It's great. Nice. So we were talking a little bit before we hit record. I know you have like. 7,000 slides of data that you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have access to, but we'll, we'll try and do what we did last time. We'll try and work our way further and further away from the green. And, and hopefully I think there's always two goals with, with, with the stats and managing expectations. We want people to have a realistic understanding of what are reasonable outcomes for their skill level. And, and Lou is great at sharing data, especially from the PGA tour. And then also it can help, help people learn not to be in the in this particular instance is not so aggressive with their targets because I think you'll see from some of Lou's stats that he's going to share with us that tour players aren't as precise as you might not you might not think they're 
from these distances. So do we want to start? Is like 50 yards a good place to start? Do we want to start a discussion there? A nice intermediate, yeah, we can, sure. intermediate, awkward wedge shot. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's go for it. Let's start there. I like that shot. I don't know. Would you guys like the fifty yard shot? I love it now. I used to hate yeah. it. I used to be terrified of it and just mangle it. But it took a lot of work over the years. I mean, I always talk about Dave Peltz's clock system, but that his book saved me the short game bible a long time ago. Really, it really did. And I know a lot of people wow. don't love what he wrote in it anymore from a technique perspective, but that book, reading it and, and using the clock system for my wedges saved me big time. I'm a huge fan of the clock system for wedges and I I do the same thing with putting. I take it back a certain distance to propel the ball a you certain will distance. now so. having a having a launch monitor. So you'll start to, are you playing any of the simulator simulated rounds at all? Because you start to veer towards that. Um, a, a little bit, a little bit, but uh, I, I do mostly a lot of just different practice drills, and I occasionally play a round of golf here or there. Now you got to get on TGC nineteen with Adam and I, and uh, and then maybe you can play some <laughs> VR ping pong with us as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hearing I'm hearing rumors about that, Mr. Crossfield. You got you had no idea what's going on in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta get I gotta get plugged into that. <laughs> All right, so let's start at the awkward 50 yard wedge shot. What are some of the big takeaways you, you see from that distance? Well, I mean, I think 50 yard shots often. I'll start. I know we're, we're talking about closer wedge shots, but I'm going to start a little bit farther away from the from the green as I talk about and lead into 50 yard shots, uh, and, and that's par fives. So I get a lot of questions around par fives and, and should I go for par fives? And what, what do I do? And one of the questions is often, what do I do even when I can't reach? And the answer is advance the ball as far as possible. You want to get the ball down there as far as you possibly can. I did a deep dive on this with Arcos data for one of the uh, Arcos ambassadors, one of the teachers, Ryan Chrysler. So if you're listening, Ryan, and no matter how you look at it, every handicap level, every situation, advancing the ball as far as you can is going to result in better scoring. Now you certainly need to pay attention to if there's trouble. So if there's water in play, there's penalty strokes in play, there's a, a 40 foot deep bunker, there's something that's going to give you a, a, a hard time or penalty strokes, you need to take that into account. But other than that, you want to get the ball down there as far as possible. I know it doesn't feel good from 50 yards to hit it to. So let's look at PJ Tour real quick. So from 50 yards, I'm going to quiz you guys. What do you think the – I'll just do the first the average proximity. What's the average proximity on all shots on the PGA Tour from 50 yards? That's from like every lie. Yeah, and hold on. I want to, I want to, I want to give you a little bit of a hint on something. So from 100 yards, the average proximity is about 18 and a half feet roughly. What do you think it is from 50 yards? I feel like you're tricking me. It's probably the same. It's like 18 feet again. I'm going to say 15 yeah, you're right on the money. Yeah, 15 feet, four inches, roughly, from 50 yards. And so what I think happens is yeah, I'm going to lay back. I'm going to give myself a full wedge because I'm really comfortable with that shot. And you hit a full wedge, and let's say you hit it to PGA Tour average, and you're going to feel like that's a pretty good shot. You get to 50 yards, and you hit it to 15 feet. 
That's PGA Tour average, but it feels like you didn't hit a great shot. Hitting it to 15 feet from 50 yards feels very different than hitting it to 18 feet from 100 yards. From from 50, you feel like you should be getting it closer. And even though there's not a massive delta between 18 feet and 15 feet, last time I checked, 15 is less than 18, and we want to be as close to the hole as possible for our first putt. So that's why we want to advance the ball as far as we can to get down into that into that range where we can get it as close close to the hole as possible. What's the strokes gained difference between 15 and 18 feet? Because then you have to weigh it up with the strokes lost by hitting that longer shot, that extra 50 yards down the fairway, right? Yeah, I can I can get that one actually pretty quick here. So average putts from 15 feet is about 1.8. And it's 1.85 from from 18 feet, roughly. So it's about 0.05 stroke difference from 15 to 18 feet. But keep in mind, you're just talking about one distance to the other. If you're looking at the distribution, there's you know, there's there's definitely a difference between 50 yards and and 100 yards. I was going to say, even if the average, even if the average was say the same, you could still get different strokes gained, right? In in reality, by you know, maybe you hit more worse shots from that range, but maybe you hit more better ones as well, knock it closer. Does it always come out that the strokes gained are the same? Or I'm not sure I totally follow that one, Adam. Yeah, I might, I might be lost in the math there. But. Well, I, had, I remember the first time I had heard this was in Every Shot Counts from Mark Brody, and he had his chapter on this, and he ran, you know, he had a lot of tour data, and he had collected some amateur data, recreational players, and ran computer simulations, and I think he was shocked by the findings also was that closer was better for like literally every handicap level. And if if anything, it makes more of a difference. And I have some other stats here that I'll share as well. I I think it makes more of a difference for the less skilled golfer than the PGA tour player, because, you know, everyone who's on tour from 50 yards is going to be exceptional by regular golfing standards. But the difference in performance as you get further away from the hole as skill level goes down, gets wider and wider. I had this is aggregate data from ShotScope, and I, I don't want to do data golf wars with you, Lou. I love Arcos too. They're <laughs> they're both they're both great companies. Yeah. But yeah. ShotScope had something from their database, and this is they weren't able to break this one by, down by handicap level. But across the board, from fifty yards, the average proximity was thirty five feet, and then as you get to eighty yards, it's forty eight feet, and one hundred and ten yards, it's sixty four feet. So it's almost from that 50 yard to that 110 yard, so that half swing, full swing scenario, it was double the proximity on the green. Now, again, that's a blended stat amongst a bunch of different handicap levels, but you know everything else I've seen as you get further and further away from the hole for recreational golfers, like their performance starts to like, I don't want to say drop off a cliff, but it gets much worse um, because they're just not as skilled as a tour player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a, there's a big difference in scoring between 50 and 100 yards. And ultimately, that's what we need to think about is on the PGA Tour, I have it right here. It's, uh, it's about, uh, I guess, like 2.65 roughly from 50 yards and about 2.8 from 100. So it's, it's you know, 0.15 shots easier from 50 yards than it is from 100. So if you choose to lay up you know, every single time you play a par five, you're going to cost yourself shots. And at the amateur level, so the scratch player level, it's about a quarter of a shot difference between 50 and 100 yards. So get it down there as far as you can. And I know 
50 yard shots. It, it doesn't feel great hitting it to 20 feet, but you are more likely to hit the green from 50 yards. You're more likely to get down in less shots from 50 yards. And, and, that, and if you're out there and you're trying to shoot the lower, lowest score you can, you want to get it as close as you can. Yeah, I think I get this question a lot and I always get the response mainly on Twitter where like everyone says they're the outlier. We're like, no, 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 I'm going to hit it closer. (laughs) Everyone's the outlier is going to hit it closer from 100 yards. And I know that there are golfers. We've mentioned this before on other episodes. I'm sure there are golfers who are worse from 50 yards than 100 yards because they've got that Y problem or that S problem. And it's like a huge mental block. That is possible. My advice to that golfer is like, you can't avoid that. Like you cannot avoid 50 yard shots while playing golf. Like something has to be done to tackle that. But I'd say still for the majority of golfers, like these stats hold up amongst all levels from everything I've seen. So, you know, whether it is a par five or even a par four, sometimes get it as close to the hole as possible without taking on too much extra risk. So if there was a bunker at 50 yards or a hazard, Certainly, I'm not going to try and challenge that. I would lay back behind that. But if it's all equal and it's mostly just fairway and rough, you're going to score lower over the long run by getting the ball closer to the hole. Yeah, it's a great, great shot to have in the bag. And don't beat yourself up if you, uh, you know, hit it to 20 feet from 50 yards. That's only five feet farther away than PGA Tour Pro's average. Yeah, I bet if we like asked a bunch of people and pulled them what they thought the average proximity from fifty yards, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, it's eight, eight feet, twelve feet, something like that." Oh yeah, they think it. They think it's really, really close. One hop, stop, and just like suck it right next to the hole. You're right. Yeah, for sure. And and it's nowhere. It's nowhere near that. Right. So having the right expectations is just going to help your golf game. If you have warped expectations, we talked about this last time. It can it can lead you to actually start to underperform. You might be good at a skill, and you may have warped expectations and think your performance is bad, and they, that might cause you some anxiety about hitting those shots. And you, in turn, your performance may actually get worse. So I think it's very important to understand what's realistic for your skill level, uh, and then use that accordingly to uh, to play the best golf you can. All right. So do we want to move a little further away from the hole now? What's what's an, the next benchmark you want to do? 100 yards, 75? What, where do you see like a meaningful change? I'll let you guys pick that. I mean, it, it's all kind of continues to smooth out and you know, just gets it takes more shots to get in the hole the farther away you are from the hole, which is why we always want to be as close as possible. So I'll let you call. What do you what do you like to look at next? Let's do like a full wedge distance. So let's get to like that, let's say 100 yards, which, you know, we'll call that. I mean, that's a partial wedge for tour players, but a full wedge slash pitching wedge for a lot of recreational golfers. What do you see there? Yeah. So there we'll look at a couple of numbers there on the tour. They hit the green 83, 84% of the time. We talked. About the average proximity is about 18 and a half feet. How many shots do you think they, what percentage of their shots do you think they hit inside of 10 feet from 100 yards? Remember, this is the best players yeah. on the planet. I mean, I want to say something like 20%, 25%. That's pretty close. It's 28%. So 28% are inside 10 feet. Which is really not that off, but not, not as much, not as much as you would assume. 
Not as much as if you watch golf on the weekend on TV. I mean, you would think they hit nine out of 10 inside 10 feet. And I don't mean to beat up on the announcers, but we definitely, we get sometimes walk away with that impression, but hitting 28% of your shots inside 10 feet is, is pretty remarkable from, from that distance. And let's see, what else would be interesting to look at? What percentage do they knock outside of say 30 feet? So that would, that, you know, that would be a really bad outside shot. Of yeah, that'd be a feet. shot where some people were like cursing themselves. Yeah, I can, I can probably get there in a second, if you give me one second. So outside of 30 feet, so that is 360 inches. And that is 17%. Wow, that's... So they had 17, 17% outside of 30 that's feet. That's more surprising uh, From 100 to me. yards in the fairway. In the fairway. That one is more surprising. They are spectacular players, but they still, from 100 yards in the fairway, they still hit a good chunk of them outside of, uh, you know, 30 feet. You know, they're definitely not happy when they do that. Well, what's interesting is uh, I have some blended stats. This is from 75 yards to 125 yards for approach shots. A scratch golfer, and this is in ShotScope's database, which probably holds up across a few, they only hit 66% of their greens from those distances, which is kind of unfathomable. And, you know, a 15 handicap, which you could say, quote unquote, is the average golfer is only hitting 41% of their greens. And if you look at the proximity to the hole, a scratch golfer is at about 39 feet. And then the 15 handicaps at 60 feet compared to, you know, what was the tour about? 20 feet, is that a good benchmark for a tour player from that distance? From 100 yards, yeah, 18, 19 feet. Or like feet 75 is, yeah. to 125, some, it would be around there. So the, the tour player is outperforming the scratch golfer by 20 feet about, and 40 feet more than, than a 15 handicap, which is insane from that, you know, that's in the scheme, oh, in the scheme of huge, golf. Yeah. 100, yeah, 100 yards isn't a, a long shot, but you see – how much separation is created there. But uh, I, I think what's interesting is that the scratch golfer still is not hitting the green all the time. Like these are very skilled golfers and they're not knocking it next to the pin at all. No, no, they're not. I have, I posted this actually recently, uh, I think last week. I have data from Arcos on low single digit players. So zero to two index players, mm-hmm. very good players from 95 to 100, 105 yards in the fairway. So I took a, a 10 yard range, hundreds right in the middle. And th- these are only shots to holes where the pin was at least 10 yards from the left edge, the right edge, the front edge and the back edge. So the pin was basically near the middle of the green on most greens, but far enough away from the edge where we're not, we're not really concerned about the edge at that skill level. And so again, remember, this is a, this is not a tucked pin. This is a pin smack dab almost in the center of the green. They only hit 10% of their shots inside of 10 feet. And these are, you know, these are players at your level, John scratch players, Uh, only 10% inside of 10 feet, 55% of their shots are outside of 20 feet. This is to a pin smack dab in the middle of the green, 95 to 105 yards in the fairway for a zero to two index player. And they hit 55% outside of 20 feet. And so it just cracks me up to see 
like some of the guys I play with, uh, and I'm not going to pick on any of them, but they get 100 yards in the fairway. They're 12 indexes. They hit it to 23 feet, and and like I hear about it for 20 minutes after the round about how they just gave one away there, and they need to get that up and down. And that's just simply, it, it's not going to happen very often where you're going to get up and down from 100. It just doesn't happen too often. There's a hole at my course, which is a great golf hole. I wish we had the property to extend the tees back for the better players. It's it's a short hole. It's uphill. But if you can hit it over 250, you're essentially, it's a massive fairway. It's a very cool, like old school green that's surrounded by bunkers. It's 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 been, it was in Golf Digest last year. It's a very cool hole. But if you can drive it over 250, you're going to give yourself a flat lie and, and a wedge shot every time to this massive rectangular green. So it's like a very, it's the quintessential shot we're talking about here. Like every time I play the hole, like it, you know, the fairway is just massive. Like it's a driving range. So if you can hit it 275, 280, you're going to have a 60 to 100 yard wedge shot, depending on the wind and the fairway uh, firmness every time. And I've played this hole probably over a hundred times with all those, you know, 60 to 100 yard wedge shots. Like I can't really think of that many times where I had like kick in birdies or a lot of eight footers. Like, and and I do get angry at myself too. Like I can't help it. <laughs> like I'll, I'll I'll be like chomping at the bit every time, and I, I I just don't flag it. I mean, I'm not aiming at the pin because sometimes you know they'll put it closer to the bunker or anything like that. But it's 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 a massive green. It's not a difficult target, and I just don't flag it all, all that often. And I'm a pretty good I'm pretty good with my full wedges. Like I I'd consider myself pretty skilled with those shots or even partial ones. And it just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. I mean, scratch players from a hundred yards in the fairway, scratch players takes them about 3.05 shots to, to hole out. Yeah. You just make your par and move on, make your par and move on. They're, they're making more bogeys than they are birdies. What do you think of that from like an impact perspective, Adam? Strike quality. <laughs> Usually. Yeah. I just put it down to that. Well, just like when you when you're thinking about a when you're thinking about a hundred yard shot, and mm-hmm. we're talking about the inability for any golfer in the world to to keep it inside fifteen feet, like it's just, I mean that that shot, I I think it's more about face control and, and ground strike more often than not. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say face control is quite a big thing, especially if you manage to start to close the face down. That's when you see big jumps in distance. And so, you know, you get those long lefts when either it's a pull or more of a draw than you're used to. You get those long lefts. It tends to be that if the face is more open, you, you don't get as much variance in distance from what I've seen and intuitively felt. So, yeah, that's why the kind of technique is... You, you tend to see techniques with golfers where they're trying to keep the face more open, more of a blocking action with the wedges, and that makes sense from that point of view. But yeah, that strike quality, obviously picking the, picking the right club, working out the conditions is huge as well. Question I have for, for Lou is, what percentage of the time do pros make two from 100 yards? I don't have my hands on that. Find it, Lou. Damn it. Yeah, I, on, I can man. find it if, if, we, if we pause. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess it's only like 22, 23% of the time. If they hit it to an average of, this is where my brain's going with the strokes gain stuff. If they hit it to an average of what, 20 feet? 28%. It's about 28% roughly. Okay. I was just thinking about if, if they hit it to an average of 20 feet 
And how often do they hold a 20-footer? 10% of the time. But then, then there's a few that are inside of that, isn't there? 20-footer is 14% of the time, about 14, about 14. So there's a bunch that they get inside. So, I mean, do they get it up and down from that distance? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no question. Should you beat yourself up if you don't get it up and down? No, not, not even close. You, you should try to make par and walk away and, and be happy that you made par. I mean, the most important thing you, sh- you can do on every single tee box, your, your number one objective is hit the green in regulation. That is, that's the most important thing you can do on every single tee box. Get it on the green. Uh, and then after you get it on the green, go from there. But get it on the green. And I posted something about that uh, not too long ago. It showed the for different skill levels, it showed the average number of greens that they would hit based on their score. And there is a very, very clear relationship, and no one's surprised by this. The more greens you hit, the more likely you are to score better. And the one thing that was fascinating about it, I don't know if you guys saw this one, it was absolutely fascinating. I'll try to pull it up here. Regardless of skill level, when when a player shoots 84, they average about seven greens. So if you're a scratch player that shoots 84, you probably hit about seven greens. If you're an 18 index that shoots 84, which happens occasionally, especially during like a three-day member guest, if you probably hit about seven greens if you shot 84. No matter the skill level, there's this really interesting relationship. So hit more greens and you're going to score better. Yeah, it's the only traditional stat. That I mean, Adam and I, we we had this conversation with Mark Brody. He doesn't love greens and regulation anymore. That, yeah. he, his re, his reaction was, is "Just tell me what you shot," which you know it's kind of true. It's like it's so correlated to scoring. But I think from a strategic perspective, like people often ask me, like when I say, like, "Oh, I, I just." I think it's so simple for most golfers to just aim at the middle of the green and take more club. And they're like, "Yeah, but what, what about when you get closer, seventy five yards, hundred yards? Do you do the green light?" I'm like. Not really, because, you know, let's say the pin was front left or front right or tucked to the left, back right, back left. It it still doesn't make sense because you're not gaining more than you're going to lose because the proximity is just not there. You know, if a PGA Tour player can get up and down from there one out of four times, you know, great. They can be perhaps a little bit more aggressive with their target because they have better control over the ball and they're exceptional putters. But you know, if you're talking about scratch, 10, 20 handicap, you know, a good shot for that level is still going to be in the 20, 30 feet. And, you know, Lou, when you do your practice with your wedges on your, on your, on your launch monitor, you can see that circle, that scatter plot is big enough where if you shifted it over to one side or the other, you might be in a bunker. So wedge play and approach play is, is, is almost like the most boring part of the game from a strategic standpoint, because people like want to do something spectacular and it's just not there, unfortunately. Yeah. Just don't make mistakes is really the key there. Uh, I've been looking at dispersion. So Arcos has half a billion shots in the database. And one of the things I started to, to unpeel was looking at the dispersion and looking at scatter plots from given distances, from the fairway, from the rough to different pins, you know, left pins, right pins, middle pins, front, back, et cetera. But when you take a look at dispersion for 
a 10 handicap or a five or a 15, whatever, pick, pick your level. It doesn't matter. And then you put that side by side with PGA tour dispersion, a scatter plot of their dispersion from the same distance. It's incredible how much difference there is, even with scratch players, which scratch players are in the very tippy top of skill level for amateurs. And they're not even remotely close to PGA tour level of skill. It's, it's, there's a, 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 there's a mile of difference in skill level between a PGA Tour pro and John Sherman. Sorry, John. No, it's not even. <laughs> I, I think always have to give credit to Brody because I was wrong about what I thought about golf for a long time. And and it as you get further away from the hole, that is golfers separate themselves more and more. A PGA Tour player is not going to separate themselves from a 20 handicap on an eight foot putt versus you put them 225 yards out on the fairway. It's a joke. Like that tour player can hit the green regularly, not all the time, or 200 yards, they're hitting a seven iron. Whereas a 15 20 handicap, they're going to be chunking and sculling a bunch of those shots, and, and 80% of them won't even get to the green because they can't hit it that far. So, and that's. I think as as we go further away from the hole, we're going to see that in the in the dispersion data. I mean, the proximity data. It just it's it is. You're right. It's insane, like how good tour players are at controlling their ball. But at the same time, golf is golf, and they can't control it that much. Much like we even had a conversation with Marty Jertson where he was talking about the ping robot, how they test in the morning. You know, they pick a day where there's like no wind and perfect conditions. And he told us even the ping robot has has dispersion like in, in neutral conditions. I think it was like eight feet no, or something. 15. I forget the 15 number. Fifteen either side standard it was deviation. 15? Yeah, it, yeah, it was it was wild, and that was in like literally neutral perfect conditions. And no one plays golf in neutral conditions. We're always going to have a little bit of wind, and that to me makes it you know that that's really the hard part of expecting to keep that that circle so small so what was the what was the robot number Gene, i didn't was it 15 Gene parente who has i know you know him john i've spoken to him a couple yeah, I know of times Gene, yeah. he said because i asked a specific question to him he said there was a 15 feet i hope i said feet and not yards last time there's 15 feet either side standard deviation or on, on average so yes that's with the yeah, robot, yeah, with the, the robot, robot at 100 mile an hour, hitting about 220 yards or something. It's 15 feet either side. With a driver. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's significant. Yeah. A lot of that could be down to ball imperfections as well. And I often wonder when I'm practicing indoors and I'm hitting, you know, I can hit re- really tight dispersions indoors and think, oh, look at me, I'm awesome. And I think, well, when I go out in the golf course, it's not the same. And I suppose you could say there, you're not hitting off a mat now. But, you know, ball imperfections. Yeah, ground contact's becoming more of an issue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as that ball leaves the launch monitor, the launch monitor uses algorithms to tell you where it's going. But, you know, it, as I said, if you hit a robot, if, if a robot hits it, the, the GC quad is going to come up much more consistent each time, I would imagine. Whereas, right. whereas when you're in real life, you see that ball land offline and there's a discrepancy between real life and the GC quad because of the ball imperfections or, or maybe a gust of wind or even not even wind, just a slight breeze can change it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Let's take a quick break there and we'll be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. And we're back. All right, I think we should get into irons in this episode. We're moving. Well, along. Yeah, yeah, I want to. I want to uh, just touch on something. Yeah. Adam talked about hitting from mats, and so I did a. I don't know if you were in this one, John. A hundred and ten yard study a couple years ago. No, I think I think the only one I did with you is that seven iron one. Seven which iron. We should talk yeah, so about. I, I had a, I had a few hundred players participate in that study, and they hit thirty shots from one hundred and ten yards, and. Uh, I just uh, pulled out some info on some scratch players. So scratch players from the mat, their average proximity was 17 feet. So indoors from a mat, 17 feet. PGA Tour players uh, from 110 yards, they're just under 20 feet. And so when you are hitting from a mat, there is so much that is that is going in your in your benefit hitting from a mat. It's so much easier to hit from a mat. So if you do a lot of practicing indoors and you see your dispersion is really tight, you really need to be aware of how much easier it is to hit the ball off of a mat compared to hitting from the turf. And just to put that in perspective, so scratch players were 17 feet indoors from a mat. Their proximity from from 110 in the fairway on real grass is almost 28 feet. So there's a very, very big difference. And does that change more in length dispersion or, or, or side to side? 
there was a they they gain a lot in not coming up as short because as you know you hit into a mat it's going to yeah, bounce not, into the club yeah they're not getting penalized for a fat fat contact they're not getting penalized it's probably going to hit a little bit higher on the face maybe it's probably going to come off with less spin which is going to make it fly farther their north south dispersion got a lot tighter off of a mat which helps the overall numbers sort of come together a little bit better if that and makes side sense. side to side so was similar? Just be careful off of a mat. Side to side was quite similar with that or? I haven't looked at side to side on that, but I will definitely look at that. I haven't looked at side to side on uh, from turf compared to a mat at that distance for that skill level. I don't have it in front of me. I started to look at some of that with Arcos now. I just don't have it handy to know exactly what it is. I personally use the fiber built mat. Again, not affiliated with any at all. That sits on top of bristles. And so what I've found is that if you hit it fat, if you go a little bit too deep in that, it doesn't bounce up off it. Means that you'll hit it really high on the face and you'll get frustratingly more distance drop off but i find it more realistic it's still not as good going to be as bad as real life where you're going to hit a bunch of mud before the ball but it certainly drops off the distance more than if i hit it off a standard range mat well i'm going to flip this podcast uh in my favor because i'm in the i'm in the market for a mat right now <laughs> I, I put i asked some advice about that recently and fiber built was one of the things that i asked about i currently have a a one that I built. It's a DIY divot action mat. If you know what divot action is, it's sort of a, a plexiglass and it's hollow in the middle and it just completely gives way. The only thing that I care about off of a mat is limited stress to my joints. That's all that I care about. I don't care about anything mm-hmm. else. Is fiber built? How tough is it it's, on the that's joints? That's the reason why I not got it. All. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not tough at all. Yeah. It's like swinging through air. That's actually the main reason why I got it because I knew once I get this thing, I'm probably going to be beating hundreds of balls on it and I just I couldn't deal with any more injuries or anything like that. So, so yeah, I bought it for that and I found it realistic. It's actually, it's got two parts to it. It's got the fiber built part, the bristles part, and then you've got a mat that you can stand on and that's very similar to a normal mat. So if I'm sometimes if I'm demonstrating things, I might cheat a little bit and just put it on the part that I stand on just to make sure I don't hit any stinkers. But uh, yeah, when I'm training myself <laughs> or, or doing it, things like that, then I'll, I'll hit it off the fiber built part, which is more punishing for shot outcome, but less punishing on your joints. Yeah, you can. I, I don't love the fiber built personally because you it, it, it can like you can hit a lot of clanky shots with it if if you don't. Yeah, you know, it's not the exact same thing of hitting into a fairway, but for turf interaction, like reducing pressure on your joints, it's definitely the best. I like the true strike is another one that people talk about. Like that's kind of the firmer one as like a gel one. I like that. I actually use the one, granted they are, I'll disclose that they are the sponsor of the show, but the, the one that in the indoor golf shop made, I have, and I really like it. They kind of went the, the true strike route where it has more give and it has like a modular pad that you can take out when you wear it out which i haven't done yet but i prefer the firmer kind but like yeah i'd say if you don't want to hurt your elbows that fiber belt can't be beat yeah i'll uh i'll have to figure that out will it straighten out my hosel rockets will i don't they know go away i don't think so <laughs> that is a whole well you got to get adam's uh, adam's adam's just laughing at me strike plan for that how's your swing stuff going because <laughs> i know you i know you're working on your swing as well you set yourself a little project of you are you still working diligently on it? 
I've been working extremely hard. It's, it's been it's been very frustrating. I'm not going to lie. I'm making a lot of changes, big changes, and it's been it's been very frustrating. It's hard work to uh, to do that. It would be easier if I didn't have to work for a living and I could practice golf ten hours a day. But unfortunately, I, I can't do that. So priorities. It just makes the. Uh, yeah, I know priorities, but it's it's coming along really well. I've made some fantastic progress, and I see that not only not only uh, you know visually looking at the swing, which I tend not to do. I very rarely look at my swing. I'm mostly focused on the the numbers that I get off the launch monitor. So, you know, and they're all tightening up really nicely. So, path, angle of attack, you know, spin, all that stuff is really getting a lot tighter, which is good. So, but at times I, I feel like I want to, I, I might want to quit and take up bingo <laughs> or ping pong. You can always join us on the VR ping pong, yep. man. We're waiting for you. I'm in, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. My daughter's not going to listen to this, but uh, her, her birthday's coming up and, and we are going to get her one of those. So I'll be able to participate in about five weeks. I let my kids use it last weekend. I really don't want them. They're five and eight and I don't want them using it. I let them like, there's a meditation app. And you can see like these little like, you know, fun creatures walking around and they like lost their minds. I told them they can only use it once a week at most. But it nice. like it blew like when you first put it on, it blows your mind. But I'm sure people don't want to hear about VR. Well, for people right, listening, talk about, we're, we're talking about the <laughs> Oculus Quest. Yeah, I don't know whether that was clear. Yeah, the Oculus Quest. A- Adam kind of sucked me into the metaverse void and now i'm just playing ping pong all day long <laughs> i love it <laughs> all right let's talk about iron play yes like we want to go to let's go to like 150 yards i feel like that's a good line in the sand number because like that's like you know i want to call it like a could be a seven iron for a lot of recreational players something like that i feel like that's always a good distance to look at what do, what do we see from that that distance what, what kind of proximity jump so we're up to at the PGA Tour level about 25 feet uh, is average proximity from 150. They hit the green about 76% of the time. And I posted this not too long ago. Amateurs from 148, it's about 150, uh, five handicaps. They hit the green about 50% of the time from that distance. And to put that in perspective, PGA Tour pros hit the green – 50% of the time from about 205. <laughs> that's incredible. That, that, that number blows me away. The 205, that that's crazy. Yeah. 205. And so imagine what a 10 handicap is going to be like compared to a PGA tour pro. So they're, they're night and day in, in skill level. For, for an amateur, they're hitting a seven, nine, one fifty, and a pro is probably hitting a seven, nine, 200. So there's a reasonable similarity there, right? It's just an extra 50 yards. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just, just a fifty-yard difference. Yeah, fifty-seven, <laughs> fifty-seven. Well, that, yard is, that is the advantage, you know, of, of additional swing speed, more, more spin, higher loft presentation, more stopping power on the greens. It's a big advantage. Yeah, if you're hitting a club with more spin loft from the same distance, so if you're if you're two hundred yards out and someone's hitting a a four iron and another player's hitting a nine iron. Bryson, then uh, he's going to have more out, or he's going to have a smaller outcome dispersion for the same path and face variance. So he can have exactly the same technique and, and still hit it tighter just by hitting a higher lofted club in. Do you have anything by pin location from that distance? I know you know you, you've always shared that. 
I forget what yardage it was from, but the stat on on front pin versus back pin on PGA Tour, which kind of shows that yeah, even at the pro level, when they chase front pins, they they tend to make more mistakes and and don't score as well versus the back pin where they they're not trying to squeeze it in there as much. Yeah, I have that here in front of me, and and I have it in twenty yard chunks, and and one of the one of the ranges that I have is 140 to 159, so 150 smack in the middle of that. And, and they hit the green 70% of the time to a front pin and 77% of the time to a back pin. And uh, from 180 to 199, just to give another number here, so 180 to 199, and this is from the fairway, by the way, to a front pin, they hit the green 49.5% of the time to a back pin, they're 64%. So it's um, almost 15% difference in greens and reg front pin to back pin. And if, and if you think about why that is, it's uh, even even the best players in the world, they don't always have the best strike. And when you don't have the best strike, the ball probably doesn't go as far as you thought it was going to go. And when the pin's in the back, if you don't, if you hit it a few yards shy or 10 yards shy of what you were intending to hit it, probably still going to catch, or it's more likely to catch a piece of the green. And if you do the same thing, poor contact to a front pin, um, it's going to come up short on the PGA Tour more than likely. So, you know, strike quality is is pretty important. And, you know, you look at these numbers, and, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but this is one of the deep dives I've done, I've done on the Arcos data. And, you know, amateurs are, you know, just they're worse in, in, in front pins, back pins, you know, these numbers we just went through for PGA Tour. And so, boy, you generally need to take more club if you're an amateur. You've heard that before, like pick a back of the green number for your yardage. And I don't want to say that's true all the time because it's not true all the time. But I can tell you amateurs come up short a lot. Yeah, I mean, we've gone through – I'll share it again because it's worth repeating, but – I'm looking at the shot scope from 125 to 175 yard approaches. A, a scratch golfer will miss the green short only 17% of the time from that distance, whereas a 15 handicap is 43%. A 20 yeah. handicap is 51, missing it short. And the left to right numbers are pretty much the same for all handicap levels, which is very surprising to me. And the long one is the same as well. You know, scratch golfer is only going long 6% of the time. 15 handicaps only going long 5% of the time. So, you know, I'm a bit of a broken record on this topic, but I think you're right. I, 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 I tell people an easy framework is middle of the green back yardage. Yes, I do realize there's certain courses where if you go long, you're out of bounds. Like if there's big, big trouble back there, then like I don't necessarily want you to take the back yardage every time. But I just not that many golfers are going to air, air mail the green because like they're not going to overperform their strike quality. Like that's a very unlikely event in a round of golf. You're going to underperform your strike quality and you have to play for that. And it's so simple and it sounds so easy, but I know people who go out to the course with that strategy sometimes will abandon it after five holes because like they're just playing like crap and they're like, I'll oh, forget this. I'm not doing this anymore. So that's why strategy and you know talking about proximity and this stuff, it, it's almost monotonous 
But even I need to be reminded of it as much as I tell other golfers, like when I play in tournaments or whatever I'm playing in normal rounds, like I have to remind myself to not listen to that other voice in my head that's telling me to go for it. So it's it's funny when you look at the numbers, how it like presents itself like that. As you say, that's the, one of the bad things I found about playing on simulator golf is that because the up and down part is so easy, you know, if you miss a green, my up and down rate is about 90% now because I've kind of locked it in because everything's all standardized. You're hitting from the same lie all the time. Yeah, it's flat. Yeah, so that actually encourages me then to get more aggressive with my approach shots because I know in real life, if you hit one 10 yards long versus 10 yards short and you miss the green, the 10 yards short is going to punish you a lot more. Whereas on simulator golf, it really doesn't punish you as much. So you start to get more aggressive with the strategy. So I constantly have to remind myself to use more club as well. I was going to ask Lou, what's the, what's the strokes gained or lost then on, say, that 190 shot? I think you give a range, right? 180 to 199 or something like that. So the way they hit 64% if it's on the back of the green versus 49% if it's on the if the pins on the front of the green. So what's the scoring difference then between those those two if you have that? All right, so here here's what I, I, I do have on that is I don't have scoring, but I can tell you birdie percentage and bogey percentage. And so to a front right pin and I have those same yardage buckets. So do you want to look at 140 to 159? Yeah, Is that good. good? Sure, that's fine. All right. Yeah, 140 to 159. So the birdie percentage to a front right pin is 19.7%. To a front left pin, it's 19%. To a back left pin, it's 19.7%. And 19.6 to a back right pin. The bogey percentage to front right is 10.6. To front left, it's 11.8. To back left, it's 9.0. To back right, it's 9.4. And... I can look at some of the other yardage buckets if you want to. I wish I had scoring there in front of me. I can kind of guess what scoring is by looking at this. And depending on the distance you you are from, like if we go up to wedge distance, like 100 to 119 yards, to front right pins, they birdie at 30% of the time. 25% to front left, 23% to, to back right, and 24% to back left. So they make way more birdies to front right pins when they have a wedge in their hand from 100 to 119, and they make the least amount of bogeys. I wonder if that's because they're landing it further intentionally and sucking it back. Yeah, I'm not sure. Could be. Who knows? Either way, like for anyone listening to this, a normal mortal golfer, like I think the 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 dumbest like mistake anyone like even if like let's say you were not gonna do the the back of the green thing like doing the yardage to the front pin in just about any scenario is usually asking for trouble from a strategic perspective. Like you're, you're going to end up short-siding yourself somehow. And I know some people always answer that, well, the courses I play are so sloped from back to front that it's like insane. If you, you know, it's better to land it 10 yards short of the green than have a putt from the back of the green. I'm like, 
where are all these? Like, I can only think of like three or four extreme courses that I've played in my area. And I've, there are some extreme greens like that, but I just think the going for the front pin, whether it's a wedge in your hand or a seven iron is asking for trouble all of the time. I agree. Yeah. I agree with that completely. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to talk about that seven iron study you did? I thought that was, that, that was the one I participated in. Yeah, that, that was a couple of years ago. I had a hundred, a couple hundred people that participated in that. So the premise of the study was I they hit 150 shots in total. It was split up over five days, and they hit three different kinds of shots. So they hit 50 shots that was just their normal stock shot. And so let's say you hit your seven iron 150. You would hit 50 total shots to that 150 yard target. Then they would hit 50 shots. And, and the, the way the study was, was broken up over five days is they were alternating the kind of shot that they were hitting. So they didn't do 50 in a row of stock on day one. It wasn't how it was set Yeah, you up. mixed it up pretty nicely. There was, yeah, like, mixed there, it up. there was no opportunity to like, I think- Get out, into a groove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, were, you were constantly changing. Yeah, and so the other, the other two styles you would hit would be a half club less and a half club more. So let's say you hit your 7-iron 150 and you hit your 8-iron 140. The goal with a half club less would be splitting the difference between your 7-iron and your 8-iron, so 145. And let's say you hit your 6-iron 160. When you hit a half club more, your objective would be to hit at 155, so the halfway distance point between your 7-iron and your 6-iron. And I honestly thought that dispersion would be tightest when people swung a little bit easier, half club less. And I was really surprised to see that it was tightest with their stock shots. I mean, it's just not what I expected from amateur players. Uh, The one part that was interesting, the one part that was interesting is overall, your stock shot had the smallest overall dispersion. The hard shots, so the ones that were a half club harder, they had the smallest north-south dispersion. So if you really need to carry it over something and there's water in the way, hitting something harder over water is probably a better idea because your north-south dispersion isn't as big. It's a lot tighter. And you were one of the outliers. We talked about this before you started recording you were one of the outliers in the study where you performed better with your um, harder swings. So I'm, I'm curious to hear if you learned from that and you changed how you play based on what came out of that. I, I wasn't surprised by that. I, based on all the shots I've hit on my sky track and what I've seen on the course, when I take something off of my irons, I know for a fact my path gets more extreme and I will hook it more. So I try not to do that as much on the course just because I've seen enough evidence where it just doesn't work as well for me. I've gotten better with it with like maybe pitching wedge, gap wedge, where I have to take something off of it. And my cue is is to kind of keep the face open a little bit more and maybe feel like I'm swinging left. But I've noticed that when I get more aggressive with my swing and, and actually go at it harder... I do hit it pretty well. So I don't go on the course like going crazy at it with my irons. But if anything, I think a takeaway for most golfers is that understanding your tendencies on these things. Like I I would 
I'm not surprised that deviating from the stock shot was not a good thing for most of the players, especially taking something off of it. But yeah, for me, I just think I was, I don't know, something about it. I was just, uh, I just struck it better. And I, I do see that on a course. So if anything, I do go at it harder when I need to. But if I have to take something off, like unless it's a win situation, like I generally stay away from that shot because I understand my tendencies. Adam, you've got a point? Yeah, look, I, I do something similar to that. Maybe not on the scale of gathering data like that, but in individual lessons, I'll often test giving someone a single target, like 160. And I'll say, right, try and bust your eight iron there versus trying to, you know, cut off the distance of a six iron versus your stock seven and seeing that and uh, yeah usually the stock is is better for most people so it's just a subtle spin on what you're doing i don't know whether you want to add that to your, your 200 people who regularly contribute as well but that's a good way of you know knowing from a given distance what's your what your best option is yeah, that's a that's a great way to think of it and do it, and it's uh, something anyone can can do at home if they have a launch monitor. You know, go through that and measure yourself and and see how you end up. You know, I, I don't think we can we can talk about approach shots without talking about angles. We got to talk about <laughs> oh, angles. Oh yeah, right? let's. Yeah, I actually uh, I still have your you know that that angle image that you had sent me the one you had, the one you had on Twitter you know, two, three, four years ago, I was doing some research for my book and I came across it kind of showing how tour players perform from the rough fairway, right pin, oh, left yeah, pin. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was and it really normal. didn't show <laughs> too many differences, whether it was like they were, you know, on the right side of the fairway or the rough going to a right pin or had quote unquote, the better angle from the left side. But yeah, let's talk about angles because I think, you know, we, we've touched on this. We did an episode on, on, on dry on a tee shot strategy and approach strategy and, and the angle thing came up. It's, it's interesting because we're, we're everyone explains golf like this, like geometrically perfect game where you can like go out there and place your ball and say, Oh, well, well then you, when you gain the angle, you can be more aggressive. And when you don't, you got to play more conservatively and, you know, share what, share what you found out about that, Lou. Yeah, that was one of the very first things that I did when I when I started dabbling in golf analytics was I looked at how having the better angle or the worse angle impacted how well you did and how well you scored on the PGA Tour. And I grew up playing the game where if the pin was on the right, you aim for the left side of the fairway because you want to have the better angle. Uh, and I always thought that that is a, a gateway to scoring lower is having the better angle. Uh, and so when I did the study, I was shocked to find out that that's not what is happening on tour. It really, the angle didn't, didn't matter. And, and just for a little context, I looked at you know, different distances from the fairway, from the rough, and I looked at pins that were cut five yards or less from the edge of the green, either the left or the right. Uh, and then I could take a look at shots in the fairway and, and see if they were on the left side, the middle, the right side. I even you know broke it down into five sections, left, left, middle, middle, right, middle, and, and far right. And more often than not, they're really close to the same. There are times where the bad angle results in better scoring than, than, the, than the, uh, the overall. But for the most part, the best scoring is from the middle of the fairway, and which was really shocking to me. And as I thought about it, my hypothesis there is that 
when a golfer, a PJ tour player has the better angle, you know, they've been, it's been drilled into to their head, probably like it's been drilled into my head. You can be more aggressive with the better angle. And so what ends up happening um, is they short side it a little bit more when they are more aggressive to a pin that's cut very close to the edge. And then the opposite kind of happens where when they have the bad angle, they you're taught to be more conservative. You don't have a good angle, be more conservative. Uh, and so they are more conservative and they aim a little bit farther away from the hole. They don't hit as many as close. They don't make as many birdies, but they also don't short side it as much. So the scoring from uh, the good side of the fairway and the bad side of the fairway is really, really close. It's within a hundredth of a shot on just about any distance you want to look at. And the middle of the fairway is generally the best and, and not by much, a hundredth of a shot, maybe two hundredths at the most. And the, the thought there that I had was they've, they've kind of found the sweet spot. So with a really good angle, they're too aggressive. With a really bad angle, they're probably a little too conservative. And from the middle of the fairway, they've found that sweet spot somewhere in the middle and they've optimized scoring by picking a quote unquote mathematically correct target. So that's what I think is going on. And, you know, and when, when people, you know, talk about angles and how having them can matter and in certain conditions it can matter, I completely agree. Um, I completely agree that sometimes having a better angle will lead to lower scoring. But the key there is you can't, you can't walk out and place your ball there. You have to hit your ball there. Yeah, and so a, a trade-off. Yeah, the trade-off, hunting that angle is very challenging. You can't effectively hunt the angle because if you are aiming closer to the edge of the fairway, by definition, you are aiming closer to trouble. And when you're aiming closer to trouble, you're going to find it more often. So we want to try to center our shot pattern as much as we can in the short grass. Uh, and hit as many in play as you can. And sometimes centering your shot pattern is away from trouble. The mathematically correct target for a certain level of player could be in the rough to keep it away from a lake that's maybe on the right side or out of bounds that's on the right side. But you ultimately want to keep your tee shot in play as much as you possibly can and stop hunting the angle. And if you do happen to get a good angle in conditions where that would matter or a hole that were, where that would matter, that's great. And, and that, you know, you, you know, you just won $200, you know, pass, go all that stuff. So, uh, but other, other than that, chasing the angle is just detrimental to scoring. I was going to say, but, but even then when you do, if, if you do manage to get that good angle, it sounds like what you're saying is, then don't chase the birdie either. You know, still play the yeah, the pot of the pot of gold is not still there. Still play the sensible shot. Yeah, you still need to pick appropriate targets. And you know, I know you've had Scott on before. With, you know, and that's what decades all about is picking appropriate targets. And and Scott would tell you he doesn't you know differentiate between you know sides of the fairway. You know, for picking the target, which is why you know I, I put something out there a while ago with um, the eleventh hole at Augusta. And this was, I think some of the trees might be gone now from some of the overhead views I saw there on the right-hand side, but this was pre-trees. So when the fairway was super crazy wide and I went to the extreme right side uh, and just called it a fairway and then the extreme left side and the optimal mathematical target, it doesn't, it doesn't change. It's the same thing. And when you lay the dispersion over and sort of, you know, tilt it based on the angle you're coming from, there's no real difference in how you're going to score from either one of those if you pick that target. 
are there certain holes where there is a, a, a better overlay of your shot pattern if you have different angles? No, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a slight argument for chasing angles, but obviously with the caveats that there's so much against it that it's still not worth it. But So to answer, I'm going to answer it two ways. One, I don't think so. I don't think there's certain holes where where you should chase it. But are there certain holes in certain conditions where having a better angle would help? Absolutely. Yeah, I can think of like wind conditions and extreme hole yeah. designs and extreme stuff like Extreme hole that. designs, very firm conditions that will make a difference. But you know, to, to talk about, uh, you mentioned sort of the the, uh, the shape of the green, I, I think was kind of what you were getting at. And one of the thi- one of the reasons 12 at Augusta is pretty challenging is because it's it's short on the left and it's long on the right. And most golfers are right-handed players, and our shot patterns are different than that. When, when we hit it right, <laughs> yeah, we're shorter short generally, and, <laughs> and when we hit it long, we're long left. And so, when you have a green, that's a really good point. And you know, when I work through something with players, we always notice, and I always say, "This is like twelve at Augusta, where it's short left and long right, and that's the opposite of our shot patterns generally." So, when you come across a hole like that, that should get your attention. Because you, one of the things that makes a hole like that a lot more challenging is if you miss it right or miss it left, you're probably going to miss the green. Now, if you have a hole that is uh, tilted the opposite of 12 at Augusta, where it's short on the right and long on the left, those are generally easier for us because you aim middle of the green. And if you, if you shut the face and you pull it and hood it a little bit, it's going to go a little bit longer. There's still green there. If you leave the face open, you're going to go a little bit shorter. There's still green there. So that is something I, I pay attention to when I play and when I work with others to plan out their strategies. When you talk about the angles and then choosing too aggressive of a target, I always think about, you know, short siding yourself. And we did talk about in the green side wedge play episode, what kind of penalty, I know tour players, when they short side themselves, they're obviously more capable of getting out of jail better than a 15 handicap would because they're just, I mean, they can manipulate <laughs> yep. the wedge. They can, they can hit a, you know, a higher, a higher shot that stops a little faster. Do you, have you seen anything in terms of like what kind of penalty short siding yourself is as skill level decreases? Like as you move from that tour player to the recreational player, like I can't imagine there's any kind of aggregate number, I mean, we know that short-siding yourself is bad, but like, have you seen anything tangible in terms of what it's worth or not worth to, to, to not short-side yourself? Uh, so I do have some stuff here on lower single-digit players. Um, and the thing, the interesting thing about amateur players compared to PJ Tour players is we generally are not playing courses set up the same way. So if you get a couple of holes cut four or five from the edge – at your course on a given day for most people, that's a, that's probably a lot. Where in the PGA Tour, that's pretty standard practice. So when you think of it that way, we don't have as many opportunities necessarily to be as short-sighted as a PGA Tour pro because our pins are cut you know, eight from the edge, nine from the edge, and they're not cut three from the edge. So there's a little bit of a difference. But roughly, you know, depending on the distance – it can be, you know, anywhere from a quarter of a shot to four tenths of a shot for low single digit players. That's significant. I, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but I know for higher handicaps that goes up a little bit. 
it starts to get a little bit higher, which just makes sense. When you put a, you know, a 15 handicap in a situation where, you know, the pins cut five from the edge, uh, you know, they're 17 yards away and there's a bunker in between and they have to flop it over the top. That's not a recipe for, for low scoring <laughs> for a 15 handicap. I, uh, that, that shot gives me the heebie-jeebies too. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Me too. So it, it's a huge impact. And uh, if we rewind and go back to our last episode when we talked greenside, you know, it's a big impact for tour players as well, you know, upwards of a, a third of a shot, depending on the situation and the distance. Well, I'm sure some of it is, I'm talking about the recreational player. It's probably a mixture of, you know, lack of skill and then poor decision making. So, you either get into a situation where you are in jail and you're trying to make up for that mistake and you're trying to thread the ball on that little piece of green that's left and then you just flub it or or skull it over and you're you're back to square one and then the other element of that is like the skills just not as as good so i think the more correct answer we discussed in, in the last episode was just taking your medicine and getting the ball on the putting surface like do what you can to get the ball on the putting surface sure. when you're in jail like that yeah. because your odds of making par are not, I don't want to say totally gone, but they've, it's, it's almost out the window. You're in let's make bogey mode versus and not make double or triple mode is what I'd tell most people to think about. And that's hard to do because, you know, you're probably pissed at yourself for missing the green and, and short-siding yourself, which perhaps could have been avoided with a smarter target, but it's going to happen no matter what, you know, you pick all the smart targets in the world and you're still going to short-side yourself. Yeah, definitely. You know, I've started to, in the Arco state, I've started to peel through and I feel relatively comfortable uh, sharing where I'm at uh, with this, but, and, and this isn't going to surprise you. So if I go and find two equally skilled golfers, so let's say a, a couple of five handicaps, and I find rounds of golf where they hit 10 greens each, which means they missed eight greens. And I find a round where Somebody short-sided it six out of eight times, and the other person short-sided it two out of eight times. Who do you think is going to score better by two or three shots, roughly? <laughs> it's going to be the person who short-sided it less. And you know, looking through this and untangling that, it's it's just so it just smacks you in the face around short-siding yourself is just a recipe for higher scores, and that is true across skill levels. And even though, you know, a a 10 handicap isn't going to hit anywhere near as many greens as a plus two, you know, they're still going to hit some and they're still good enough to get the ball around the green a good chunk of the time. And when they short sided a lot, it's tough to score. It's just tough to score. So minimizing how often you do that is absolutely critical. When I went through ShotScope's database and they started adding strokes gained, it it wasn't surprising. It, it validated what was in every shot counts was that at all levels of golf, approach play is where people separate themselves the most in scoring. Have you looked at that with Arcos yet? Can I jump the gun on you there? Or, or? No, I, I have. And so I one, you know, two interesting, you know, a couple of interesting takeaways there. One, if you are looking at, skill level difference between let's just say a 10 handicap and a scratch player. The biggest difference between them will be an approach play. 100% approach play is going to be the biggest differentiator. There's more, there's a bigger stroke gap in that skill 
than any of the other skills. But what I found really fascinating was that every skill level that you look at, so whether I look at 10 handicaps, five handicaps, 15s, 20s, scratch players, two, it doesn't matter what handicap, handicap level player I look at. At that level, the biggest gap between the most skilled and the least skilled in a given skill level was with putting. So putting had the biggest gap at a given skill level. So if I look at all the 10 handicaps, the biggest difference between the best putters and the worst putters is way is bigger than the best approach players and the worst approach players, best drivers, worst drivers, best around the green, worst around the green. So then it was like that through the, you know, through the bag or, you know, through the skill level. And so I, I think, and, and Adam is somebody that teaches people all the time. It's what he does for a living. I don't think many people spend a lot of time practicing putting. I think a lot of people, the amount of practice they get with putting is five minutes before they tee off, they roll a handful of balls and they scatter over to the first tee. And, and so when you look at the data across all of the, the massive number of, of players that Arcos has, the lowest hanging fruit for a lot of players is probably putting. And that's going to help some of them out pretty substantially. There was, I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say there was about four shot, roughly four shots of difference between the best putters and the worst putters at a given skill level. Could you tell that was that through, do you know what percentage of that was three putt reduction or? Uh, I don't know that one. I don't know that yet. Okay. I'm, I'm guessing it's probably a, a good chunk uh, yep. for amateur players, which it would boil down to speed control. Yep. And so that's that's really important. But that's a that's a big difference, which is why tracking your stats is so important. You know, blanket a blanket statement. If you're a, a five handicap or a ten handicap, and you want to become a scratch player, a blanket statement might be you need to be better at approach play, and that's probably fair for a lot of people. But if you have actual stats on your performance, you could be in the bottom ten percent of putting as a 10 handicap and you if you went to the top 10% of putting as a 10 handicap you would improve your your handicap your index by three and a half four shots yep. by going from the best the worst putter to the best putter at that skill level and so that's why it's so important to understand you because some people like me I'm a, a great putter a horrible ball striker I need to be a better ball striker and there's some players that I've worked with. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but a couple of really low single-digit index players that I worked with, and they had three shots of difference between them at putting. Now, one, one guy I would say, you need, you need to spend a lot of time with putting, and the other one I would say, you don't need to spend any time like you, you know, or, or minimal time. It's just two very different plans of attack based on what you are good at and what you're bad at. So that's why I, I'm a huge proponent of tracking all of that stuff. Well, yeah, you don't want to end up spending, you don't want to end up spending time where your gains are going to be marginal and you'd rather be spending your time where you have the biggest bang for your buck because we're all fighting against time. Sure. We don't have unlimited time to practice the game. Right. So, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've discussed that a lot on the show and I'm glad you bring that up because yeah, I, I've seen that as well with certain play. Like for me, I think it was my T game holding me back for a long time and putting and I really 
focused on two of those. I think my last step is probably green green side wedge play, assuming that the other parts of my game hold up, but that's no guarantee. It's golf. <laughs> but yeah, everyone's answer is is different. But like in aggregate, yes, looking at the stats from like a 30,000 view, like you look at what a scratch golfer can do with a seven iron in their hand versus a 20 handicap and, you know, the quote unquote, like standard of those two, it, the, 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 the difference is just massive. And the difference between a scratch player and a tour player with the seven iron in their hands is, is crazy too. Sure. Yep. I agree completely. So track your stats. Um, and that way you, you'll know what to work on. So when you, when you call Adam, you can give him some good info, which I think is another important piece of the puzzle. I, I have to imagine that Adam gets people that show up, and, and I'm not going to ask you to put anyone on the spot, but I've had other teachers tell me the same thing, where they get a student that shows up and they say, you know, I'm a, I'm a great driver of the golf ball. And you put a driver in their hand and you watch them swing the club 15, 20 times, and you're just going, no, you are definitely not a great driver of the golf ball. And I think we're all guilty of – a little bit of a bias in what we think about our games and our skill levels at the different categories in the game. And, and you can remove some of that, not only for yourself, but for your teacher. You know, it, it, we, we can't, we all don't have unlimited funds to, to go spend and hire a teacher to be on retainer 10 hours a day. So the time that you have with your instructor is valuable. And if you can give your instructor good, meaningful on-course performance data, I have to imagine that is going to help guide what your instructor is going to work on with you with that kind of data. Yeah, am I too, am I am, am I far off there, Adam, or what do you think? I don't mean to put yeah, you on definitely. the spot. I mean, even even with strokes gained data, I collect that definitely. But I have my own little sheet that keeps track of certain things, like why why are you hitting bad shots as well? So you know, someone could hit short, and the strokes gained data would say, well, you've lost shots from approach. But it doesn't necessarily tell you why. It's like, well, why did they why did they lose shots with that? Well, they hit it short. And then you go to the next level. Why did you hit it short? Was it a bad strike? Was it a bad face strike, ground strike? Was it a great strike? You just misclubbed, you know, chose the wrong club. Or maybe you miscalculated. Maybe you hit the shot and you strike everything perfect. And you go, oh, I just completely forgot that that is uphill. I didn't take that into account. Or maybe a gust of wind happens. So I've got things that track. I've got a sheet that tracks this in my next several golf program. And so it really helps determine what you should be working on as well. Yeah, I love that. You know, those are those are all great things to, to think about. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. The clues are always out there. Like I'm always paying attention to people that I play with. And I've, I've actually, you know, I've played with some people who, you know, follow the site and, and the show and they kind of ask, like, I'll play with them. And they're like, well, what do you think? And for some golfers, like you could look at them and you say, like, I don't necessarily think it's a a technique thing. It, it I, I just see when I play with people on the course. And this is why I, I'm so passionate about these other issues. Is it's like I just see a lot of stuff on the course, decision making, how they conduct themselves. Like, there's just so many. Like I'm getting to Adam's point. Is like stroke gained is a starting point. And that's like where your clue, or that's the first clue, and it's a much better clue than looking at fairways and regulation or putts per round and stuff like that. That's your first clue, but then you got to dig deeper. Is it a strike issue? Like Adam says, are you missing green short? But sometimes, like you got to really go back to the rounds and analyze yourself, almost look at yourself in the third person, being like, what is going on here? If I am losing strokes with approach play, I think 
the best case scenario is maybe it's just really crappy strategy for some people. Cause I, I do see a lot of players who are capable. You know, I see some players who are like 10 handicaps and I'm like, you could be a three or a four for sure. If you just tighten up some of this stuff. So we're veering off topic a little bit here, but that that's, what's so interesting to me about golf and the stats is like, you start with the stroke skiing. I'm now convinced that that's the most effective way to benchmark, benchmark your, performance and see where, where the, the ship is leaking, so to speak. But then you got to figure out like why it's leaking and Adam's resources are great for that. But then like also thinking about, you know, doing some introspection uh, on the round and, and thinking about your mental game, your strategy, how you're conducting yourself on the course in general, how you're practicing. So, yeah. And when you get the why as well, once, once you get the why, there's also that deciding on what's the return on time invested. So for example, if someone is losing strokes gained with driving, strokes lost with driving, then you could look at it, is it direction, is it distance? Okay, we figured out it's distance that's costing them. Okay, well, you've got a few little levers that you could pull here. You could launch the ball higher, you could spin it lower, uh, you could increase ball speed. How are you gonna increase ball speed? Well, you could, do a workout, you know, the stack system, something like that, or you could just improve that strike. You're hitting everything 25 millimeters off the heel. I can change that in five minutes. That's going to be the quickest return on time invested. It's not to say that the other levers are are not worth pulling, but, you know, there's uh, the putting example that you gave, Lou, is a really good one. I often get people to practice their putting more before tournaments because that is something that can really improve. Speed control is something that can quickly improve with a short amount of practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that completely. Getting back to our topic here, do we have, we're probably reaching the, end-ish part of the episode here. Did you have anything, any other big takeaways you've seen from tour performance, Arcos data, anything like that on iron play? I mean, I just, you know, our approach play in general, uh, approach play does factor in fairway woods and hybrids as well. I don't want to just say iron play. <laughs> it, it does. Yeah. I just, I mean, when I look at all the stats, it's, it, it seems so obvious when you look at it, it's like the further you get away from the hole, the further performance separates from skill levels, you know, generically speaking. It's just, I'm looking at like 175 to 225 here. You know, a, a scratch golfer from those distances only hits the green 35% of the time, a 20, a 20 handicap 5% of the time. Like, <laughs> and, the, and, the, you, and the, <laughs> this is the best one. And this is from ShotScope. So, you know, the proximity is not perfect, but it's, it's probably close enough. 82 feet. From 175 to 225, 82 feet proximity for a scratch golfer, a 15 handicap is 166 feet. Wow. It's double. And I bet the tour player is half of what the scratch player is doing. What's a tour player from 200 yards about? Proximity from 200 yards is 41 feet. Yeah, it's exactly half. That is exactly half of what a scratch golfer is doing. That is a mount. Like when I play with. You know, I get an opportunity to play with some plus four, plus five, plus six handicaps here and there. And that's where I see it. Like I watch them hit shots from further away, like three woods, you know, from the fairway or long irons. And I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Like I I can't even like I'm hitting this like low rocket (laughs) coming in there and they are just like floating. Like this one guy at my course used to play on the mini tours for 10 years. He's the greatest ball striker I've ever seen. 
and we have a par five finishing hole at our course. And if you hit a good drive, you have a downhill lie. And he just pulls out his like three wood from 260 and a downhill lie and just like floats it up there with this fade. And I'm just like worm burning it in there because like I'm on a downhill lie. It's just it, it's just amazing how when you get that far away from the hole, the separation and skill is like it's like Mount Everest almost. It's huge. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. One of the players I work with is um, Austin Greaser. He plays at UNC. He was runner up in the USM last year, which you're going to get to see him at Augusta in a few months. Nice. And he sends me uh, some of his TrackMan sessions, and you know he'll send me some of these things, and, and it might be a four iron, and, and he throttles the ball. He's got crazy speed. And I'll just look at his dispersion with a four iron and I'm just like, man, I, I'd, I'd kill for that dispersion with my wedge. I yeah. mean, you're just, you're absolutely flushing everything with your four iron. It's uh, it's amazing. The talent level, the skill that they have at that level compared to regular Joe's like me that are, you know, just out there hacking it around. It's, uh, it's how enormous. much better are you seeing the dispersion patterns when a player is in a stock environment like that, hitting off a mat track man on the range versus when they get on the course, you know, we can obviously talk. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely better. You know, he's hitting off of grass with, with a track man behind him a good chunk of the time, but you know, there's part of the time where he's, you know, indoors on a mat and it's, 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 it's better even for him. It's not the, the worse you are as a player, the, the more benefit you're going to get from a mat. Uh, if you were a 15 handicap and you got to put your ball on a mat, uh, every shot out on the golf course, you wouldn't be a 15 handicap anymore. You'd be a lot better than a 15 handicap. It's like playing T ball versus live pitch. When you have, you know, when you have as much control, the club face at that level, do you hit occasionally a little behind the ball, which on a mat, you, as you know, from hitting on a mat, it, it can help out a lot, especially on many kinds of mats you'll hit from. At elite skill levels, I don't think they do that quite as much. So do they? are they a little better for mats? Yes. Do they have as much of an improvement in their ball striking compared to a 15 handicap? No, not even close. I'm more talking about the dispersion when they're block practicing. Even if it's on on the grass, block practice oh. versus out in the real environment on the course, is there? Are you seeing as as big a dispersion difference as I do? You know, it's a it's a good question, and I don't know that I'm fully equipped to to answer that on the, on the fly because I've I don't know that I've ever done a complete study with enough people and enough situations to look at block practice versus random. I I will say from the the 110 yard dispersion study that I did, one of the things that was really, really interesting was, and this was just 30 straight shots. So they hit 30 shots with 110 yard wedge indoors off of a mat, their proximity and their, you know, their overall, their, their shot dispersion. So their standard deviation got bigger. Their proximity got bigger the more shots they hit. So shots one through 10, they had a 20 foot average proximity in my sample here of players with a 14, 14 feet of standard deviation uh, shots 11 through 20. The proximity was 22 and a half feet and the standard deviation went up to 15 and a half feet. And then shots 21 to 30, the average proximity was 25 feet and the standard deviation went up to 18 wow. feet. So, just so it was five feet more of, 
fatigue, getting bored, getting. Yeah. That's, that's exactly why, you know, Woody Lashin who comes on the show for club fitting knowledge, like he does not have people hit tons of ball and balls and sessions for that exact same reason. Like he's always cycling back and forth between the clubs and he's like, that's it. We're done because, you know, especially with drivers, like people just, you know, they're swinging so hard. Eventually they just, they start, especially a less skilled player, they just start breaking down. And then you can't get good data anymore based on what's going on. You'd rather have like fresher swings. So that that's not a surprise to see. Yeah, it's clearly Adam and I have had this chat before and, and uh, I'm a I'm a big proponent of the kind of practice that Adam teaches. So, you know, random differential and all of the things that Adam you can read in his book, which was my introduction to that type of practice. So thank you, Adam. <laughs> All right. Do we want to wrap it up there, fellas? Yeah. Uh, th- thanks again for having me on, guys. I always enjoy the chat. So, Lou, where I know you're you're most popular on Twitter. Your your following continues to be mammoth. I'm sure it's thousands of more followers since we last spoke with you on the show. You can find me on Twitter at Lou Stagner. I've tried to get on Instagram, but I'm just too old and dumb to figure out Instagram. <laughs> and I'm just being honest. So I tried. I and um, I'll 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 try again at some point. <laughs> it's just hard. To, it's hard to. I'm not a social media person at, at all. And so to to spend time on two different platforms. Is, you're good on Twitter. You're, you're good on Twitter. Definitely. I haven't I haven't posted on Instagram in like three years. Adam, you're pretty good at Instagram. No, I don't I've, use I've Instagram. I, I barely use it. But you have some videos. Yeah, at, least, just... at least that that's better on there. Yeah, I don't even mess around with it. But yeah, follow follow Lou on Twitter. He's he's one of the best followers. Is always sharing cool stats. And and again, yep, the, the main reason we want him to come on here is one of our goals is to help all of you listening to this, manage your expectations. Don't beat yourself up on the course. A lot of these shots that you're hitting, you probably should pat yourself on the back. And then of course, the other takeaway, particularly with these approach shots is not being too aggressive with your targets because of all the things we discussed. So yeah, thanks again for all of your time. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again, guys. Always, uh, always enjoy it and, uh, look forward. Yeah. To, we'll do, uh, uh We'll do, maybe we'll do, I guess, Drivers is up next. We'll have you back on. Yeah, that'd be great to talk through that. And we're going to have to get together here in a few months and play some golf, John. We're not too far away from one another. You're always welcome out on Long Island. It's not, it's now just, you know, it's not in Long Island. It's on Long Island. Is that the proper terminology? Is that what you say? No one can see this. We have video going on right now. You see that picture behind me? I do. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's by, I forget the name of the artist, but it says golf in Long Island. Uh, and I messaged him and I'm like, it's a Seinfeld joke, but it's true. No one who lives on Long Island says in Long Island, it's on Long Island. So just just so you know that. I look forward to being on Long Island. Uh, <laughs> you can come out whatever you want. All right, Adam, where can they find you? AdamYoungGolf.com and the sheet that we talked about that tracks everything, all the um, physical, mental impact faults, you know, to determine what you should be working on. That is in my next level golf program. So for um, existing members, that's in the routine section in the post shot routine video. And John, where can people find you? 
You can find me at practical-golf if you are interested in tracking your stats. I do have a sweet deal on ShotScope. You get a GPS watch and their stat tracking system. Not that Arcos isn't great as well. They're both awesome products. So you can check that out. But unfortunately, I don't have a deal with Arcos, so I can't offer that to you. Maybe, Lou, you can get you can get our listeners a deal on Arcos soon. You got to hit them up for that. Yeah, I will. But yeah, you can go check out my deal section for that. And we want to thank our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can... Go to their site, Shop Indoor Golf, for all your indoor golfing needs. They are the experts when it comes to indoor simulators, like Lou's new toy. His, I keep wanting to calling it a GC3. It's your Bushnell, your Bushnell, Bushnell Pro Launch. Your Bushnell yeah. Pro Launch at the five-year cutoff for your, uh, your payback. That's why he went with that option. Yeah. So you can give them a call. Talk to their guys, Brian and Wade. They will help you find the best launch monitor for your budget and guide you through the different technology to help you become a better player. And we thank them and their team and you can find them at shop indoor golf and we will see you next time with a new episode.